You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. No president should be able to sustain boots on the ground without congressional approval and without a clear explanation of what the mission is and what the end game is. This isn't really about the economic policy. This is about the coronavirus. Bloomberg Sound On. Politics, policy, and perspective from D.C.'s top names. We must use every tool possible to defeat this assault on women's reproductive rights. This is a steady growth that we're seeing here in our economy, you know, over the last three months. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where tax hikes have been approved by the House Ways and Means Committee. The same higher corporate rate, 26 and a half, same capital gains rate, 25 percent. We told you about on Monday. We're going to get into the details in just a moment. And Republicans are calling today, calling on him to resign, not Joe Biden, but the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. As a forthcoming book from Bob Woodward and Robert Costa says, General Mark Milley held secret phone calls with his counterpart in China behind the back of then-President Donald Trump. We're going to talk about it in just a moment with Alexander Vindman, the retired Army lieutenant colonel who testified against Trump in his first impeachment trial. The whistleblower says General Milley should resign if this is in fact true. We'll bring it to the panel as well with Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist Rick Davis and Democratic strategist Scott Bolden with us for the hour. And we want to start with breaking news from Capitol Hill. Just hit the terminal. The headline, tax hikes to pay for Biden agenda approved by House committee. The biggest set of U.S. tax increases in a generation. Take a major step forward. Approval by the House Ways and Means Committee, $2.1 trillion in new levies mostly focused on corporations and the wealthy. Ways and Means Chair Richard Neal, Democrat from Massachusetts, just a moment ago. As parts, each individual measure we've approved of has the potential to change lives. Taken together, these investments will transform our society to be more prosperous, equitable, and fair. It's what the American people deserve, a broader opportunity. And so it passes Ways and Means. Again, this is just part of the way. It's just the next step for businesses. Top corporate tax rate, 26.5% from 21. We knew that was coming. It extends tax rules on sales of equities to cryptocurrencies and commodities for the first time, leaving untouched breaks for oil and gas companies. Interesting to note. For individuals, the top tax rate restored 39.6%. Again, we told you about this on Monday that it was coming. Capital gains 25% up from 20, and there's a special surtax 
on people to make more than $5 million a year, a 3% surtax. Now, the ink is still drying on this. They just took the vote. And we're going to talk about it in more detail a little bit later on this hour with Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick. The other major headline today in Washington, one we're going to spend some time on here. From the forthcoming book by Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, it's called Peril, that General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, went behind then-President Trump's back in making secret phone calls to China to avoid an armed conflict, the report says. Some Republican senators and Donald Trump himself are crying treason. And here's what we know. The Washington Post reports the first phone call from Milley came four days before the 2020 election when he promised China the U.S. was not planning an attack. Felt a need to do that. The second call came two days after the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in January when Milley reassured China, his counterpart in Beijing, that democracy was still intact. A statement from Milley's spokesman has arrived, Colonel David Butler. He says Milley acted constitutionally and continues to act and advise within his authority in the lawful tradition of civilian control of the military. That is a quote. Now, we know President Biden stands by the general. Made very brief comments today. I have great confidence in General Milley. How about that for brief? I have great confidence, he said, in an event today, an unrelated event at the White House. Press Secretary Jen Psaki added a bit to that. The president knows General Milley. He has been chairman of the Joint Chiefs for almost eight months of his presidency. They've worked side by side through a range of international events. Uh, And the president has complete confidence in his leadership, his patriotism, and his fidelity to our Constitution. But this story may be about more than just General Milley as the day has gone on. Axios now quoting a senior defense official that Secretary of Defense Mark Esper was also involved. Writing, quote, Esper took the initiative on this in October. Esper asked his own policy folks to back-channel the message. And Milley's message followed Esper's, unquote. Now... We're joined to talk about all of this by retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, former director for Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, and Russia on the White House's National Security Council, and author of the book Here, Right Matters, which gets into his testimony against Donald Trump in the first impeachment trial. Lieutenant Colonel, thank you for being here. You got a lot of attention uh, by tweeting that if these charges are true, General Milley should resign. Do you still feel that way after all we've learned in the last 24 hours? I uh, you know, there's always new information that's going to come out. Those were first reports and, uh, frankly, in a lot of ways, uh, uncorroborated. But I think mm-hmm. the, the issue is people are fixated on the China component. The China component never bothered me. The China component just seemed uh, absolutely absurd that the chairman in their initial reports would warn an adversary of an attack. And uh, what it sounded to me like is just typical standard run-of-the-mill counterpart uh, conversations that I participated in dozens of times between the head of our military and the head of, uh, you know, another military. Um, so that that's not what bothered me. The reporting that bothered me was the fact that Chairman Milley was so concerned on multiple occasions. We heard it reported in this book, in Bob Woodward's book, in Carol Leone's book back in, in January, that he had made comments behind the scenes to officials, but he never really took any actions to protect the, 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 uh, to protect the country. That, that bothered me. It also bothered me the reporting about the actions that he took with regards to nuclear command and control, mm-hmm. that he was going to uh, insert himself in a way that was, was not in accordance with uh, a proper, uh, well, 
frankly, without accountability. Uh, if he was operating where he did not inform civilian leadership of his actions, to me, that's deeply troubling. That means that senior most military officer in, in the U.S. armed forces was accountable to nobody but himself. And I find that deeply troubling and subverting uh, civil military norms. That's right. That That is part of the book that says General Milley, just to be clear, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, that General Milley told those around him, officials in the military, that before they go anywhere else, if there is an order from President Trump to launch the missiles or make some sort of nuclear attack, they come to him first. That's what you're talking about? That's, that's right. And, uh, you know, the, the fact that he had those concerns is not an issue. I had deep concerns about President Trump. There's no question I had massive concerns. But the fact that he, his recourse to do this was to subvert civil military norms, and instead of doing what would be much more courageous, something similar to what Jim Mattis did when uh, ill-considered Trump uh, ordered the withdrawal from Syria, and Jim Mattis resigned, saying that this is not right, that's what a courageous action would be. This was sharing some concern and subverting civil military norms. And you can't just walk away from that. Mm-hmm. There has to be accountability. I wrote a book about it. I wrote about a book about, you know, not going down uh, the, the road of situational ethics. If he did these things, he, he can't stay in position. He's frankly been a, probably the most controversial chairman that we've had since, you know, Curtis LeMay or maybe even, um, you know, MacArthur, Douglas MacArthur. And I don't think the military needs somebody that's now perceived as that political an actor. So your message uh, then, uh, Alexander Vindman, as one of the most famous whistleblowers in recent memory here in Washington, is that General Mark Milley should have blown the whistle. I think that's, I think that's right. I think, frankly, in a lot of ways, um, what he could have done in key moments in where, where it would have mattered, not months later in you know, books and reporting coming out of books, in key moments where it truly mattered, he could have gone on record saying, this is not something that's, that will stand. This is un-American, whatever the case might be. He could have carried his message that, at that moment. And yeah. guess what? He's not the single guardrail. There were more than a half a dozen other chiefs that he, any one of them could have stopped, stepped in and the job, done the job as well, if not better. There is not a single point of failure in the military. We're, we have an enormous amount of terrific officers, and he could, have, he could have made his voice heard when it really made a difference. I think I know how you're going to answer this next question. But if, in fact, the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, was involved here and took the initiative here, going to, going to the extent of opening that back channel, and General Milley followed Esper's lead, does that change your calculation? Or should General Milley have blown the whistle on the Defense Secretary? Well, you know, it's interesting. Like I said, I, I, I've been party to these kinds of phone calls and meetings, for that matter, on multiple occasions. And I, that was not a, I just didn't take it as credulous. Uh, that it was being reported as something like a secret meeting. Of course, there are secret meetings. We're not going to publicize all the meetings that we have between key leaders. What, what, was, what troubled me was the end run around civilian leadership that's mm-hmm. been reported on multiple times when the more right answer would have been to, to make your voice heard, to, to make your voice heard and to let the public know what was going on. You, you cannot, doing the wrong thing, even for the right reasons, must have consequences. Right still matters in America. Actions must have consequences. Talk to me more about the lawful tradition of civilian control, as Colonel Dave Butler referred to Milley's spokesman in, in his statement. 
the sanctity, Lieutenant Colonel, of civilian control? Why is it so important? Well, I mean, our, this is one of the things that really differentiates us from, from many, many other militaries in which the military exercises uh, authority not over just, uh, you know, the purview of defense, but also in, uh, in, in politics. That had been the case, let's say, in Turkey in previous years, where there were where the military was the, the definitive force in Turkey prior to President Erdogan, uh, and there and that's certainly the case in Egypt. It's been historically the case in like the, the German general staff going into World War One. There are a lot of precedents that uh, set the military kind of above the law and uh, accountable to no one. The tradition in the U.S. military is that we, we have a civilian chain of command. Uh, the chairman's role is in, 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 that, uh, in that process is to advise not only just the president of the United States, provide best military advice to the president of the United States, but also to the secretary of defense. And there were, you know, there were, the, the Trump administration created so many different challenges in so many different institutions. Mm-hmm. But if we want norms to matter, if we want our, 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 our return back to, to the norms preceding the Trump administration, uh, then we need to, frankly, hold people accountable. And, Lieutenant uh, Colonel, we thank you for the insights. Alexander Vidman, retired Army Lieutenant Colonel. The book is here, Right Matters. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for joining us on Bloomberg Sound On as we assemble the panel now to talk more about General Mark Milley and calls for his resignation. As the new Woodward book says, Milley worked a back channel with the Chinese to avoid armed conflict during the Trump administration. As we just discussed with Alexander Vindman, we're now joined by Bloomberg politics contributor, Republican strategist Rick Davis and Democratic strategist Scott Bolden is with us for the hour. Partner at the Washington firm, Reed Smith. Welcome to both of you, Rick Davis. Should General Milley in fact resign if this is true, even if then Secretary Mark Esper was involved? Yeah, I think that the key thing you you point out is if this is true, right? I mean, we've heard from his spokesperson that um, many of these communications that are now described in a book, which, of course, uh, you know, Bob Woodward and his uh, co-writer are writing in order to sell. And Mm -hmm. so uh, sensationalism sometimes is uh, good for business if you're a book writer. His spokesman didn't deny any of it, though. Yeah, well, he didn't deny it, but he said they were much more in the normal course of uh, activity. I mean, we know that this you know, joint chiefs uh, communicate, uh, especially the chairman, with their counterparts in Russia and China on a regular basis. And and I'm not diminishing the fact that these were pretty unusual times, and he took unusual uh, measures. But if indeed um, uh, Secretary Esper at the time was aware of these things and 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 had condoned them. Uh, then he has satisfied to some degree the chain of command that that he is required to report to his top civilian leadership. Yeah. Scott, where are you on this? Did did, did General Milley violate the Constitution if he was working back channels? Well, he's only obligated to follow uh, constitutional orders. Let's not forget that. 
And you had an American democracy in crisis. You had the insurrectionists as of January 6th, although my gut is it took place before that. But he was trying to save democracy. The bigger question here is why did General Milley, a decorated uh, serviceman, believe that America was at risk and that we had a president that was mentally unstable, having manifested it in several ways, and that it was his job. Let's say it is true that it's his, it was his job to protect America, but to protect the rest of the world. Now, there were several people on that call. I, I agree with Rick. I don't think it was as dramatic of a call as the book makes it out to be. But I do think that Millie and others, including Nancy Pelosi, were very concerned about what the president was doing and thinking and his erratic behavior between November 2nd or 3rd up until Inauguration Day. Uh, and I think those are legitimate concerns. And I think Millie... Uh, you have to look at what he was looking and seeing and feeling as a professional uh, Joint Chief of Staff, head of Joint Chief of Staff, mm -hmm. in regard to what he thought was necessary. And I think you've got to give deference to him if this is true. There were two calls, uh, as we mentioned earlier. One was right before the election day, two days as well after the insurrection at the Capitol, the attack on the Capitol in January. Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, of course, asked about this repeatedly today. She tried to put it in context. I think it's important to consider uh, some of the context, uh, key context of this period in time, of time in history that we're discussing and is outlined or covered in portions of uh, this book. Um, the outgoing president of the United States during this period of time, uh, fomented unrest, leading to an insurrection and an attack on our nation's capital. And, Rick, we know that General Milley had issues uh, with Donald Trump, remembering the whole uh, throwdown in Lafayette Square when they, they cleared out the protesters. The president held the Bible up in front of uh, the church across the street and, and was joined by several high-ranking officials, including uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and, and Mark Milley apologized for that after. As many of you saw the result of the photograph of me at Lafayette Square last week, that sparked a national debate about the role of the military in civil society. I should not have been there. My presence in that moment and in that environment created a perception of the military involved in domestic politics. As a commissioned uniformed officer, it was a mistake that I've learned from. Of course, Donald Trump was not a fan of that statement, Rick Davis, but is it a good thing to have a skeptical chairman of the Joint Chiefs, or do we need to have someone who supports the commander-in-chief while advising him? Well, I think this is a, a really open question that, that should be thoroughly debated today. Um, uh, the Trump administration uh, really violated a lot of the established norms that were uh, typical uh, prior to his presidency uh, in that same group that walked through Lafayette Square was the uh, attorney general. What was he doing in Lafayette Square? Mm -hmm. It looked like a political event. Mm -hmm. Secretary right. of Defense was there. Typically, these are individuals who do not attend political events, but those norms were violated in the, in the Trump administration, and I think it deserves time that we use in this instance to look back and say, what is the proper role of the military? What is the proper role of the attorney general in an administration that might try to politicize it? This Defense Department well, was not the only agency that was politicized during the Trump administration. Scott Bolden, I only have a minute. Is that the point of that job, the, the person no. advising the president on military matters? I don't, I don't want any advisor uh, to completely agree with me. 
I want advisors around me that are bright, talented, but I also want them to push back when they think I'm wrong. And I want their view of the world because my view of the world isn't the only one. And so I think a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff certainly has to be supportive of the president. He's the commander in chief, but he's got to give his honest assessment, protect me, defend this country, and uh, do what's best in that role. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 11.30, to Boston, Bloomberg 1061, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew. Democrats on Capitol Hill filling in more blanks in their $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. The House Ways and Means Committee with a breaker less than an hour ago passing over $2 trillion in tax hikes for business and the wealthy, as we told you at the top of the hour, including the 26.5% corporate tax rate. Saw that coming. 25% capital gains tax rate. Told you about that. Monday, here we are. And the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee today passed a $57 billion bill that would cut greenhouse gas emissions and fight climate change. This, too, would become part of the overall reconciliation bill. I talked details on this with White House National Climate Advisor Gina McCarthy. Thanks, Joe. It's great to be with you. started by asking about where all the climate spending would go. So we are looking at opportunities for more than $300 billion in the reconciliation package, for incentives for businesses and consumers that are going to really drive good-paying manufacturing jobs forward, move clean energy technologies forward. You know, we have to win uh, the, the job growth in the 21st century of the future. So we're looking at $195 billion in investments in storage and wind and batteries and transmission. We're looking at $60 billion for new electric vehicle purchases so consumers can, can actually drive the cars of today and the future. We're looking at $20 billion in home energy efficiency upgrades and $15 billion in clean energy manufacturing and carbon capture and sequestration. We are looking at you know $10 billion to support existing nuclear. We are looking at a suite of clean energy investments that will tackle this climate crisis. But, but equally importantly, that's going to put us on a footing to provide leadership internationally on this mm-hmm. and win the 21st century. And, the, and the, the, lastly, we, we have an exciting $30 billion proposal that's in there that's going to create a new civilian climate corps. And that this is really about serving the needs of, of, of individuals who are looking to actually have worker transition happen from the fossil industry where we're losing jobs into the new clean energy industry. We're looking at engaging our young people as well as our old people and getting out and doing work in the natural world because that's going to be important as a carbon sink opportunity. But it's more about making sure that people are getting prepared for the jobs of the future now. It has a lot of workplace development opportunities, a lot of training. We're working with the unions on programs to get people ready for a union job. Mm -hmm. So this is way more than a climate effort. 
Well, the specifics are helpful because people talk about initiatives to fight climate change, and and these dollar figures help. But I'd also love to ask you about priorities within that menu that that you just laid out. You were with President Biden, of course, on the trip to New York to see the damage from Hurricane Ida. What do we need specifically to prevent the kind of flooding we saw in and around New York, for instance? Yeah, well, that's where the first package, the real infrastructure package, comes in. You know, we just, frankly, stopped investing in ourselves. You know, when we I went with the president when he went to New York and New Jersey and the devastation's clear and it's in communities where if you drove down the street, you would never expect they could be flooded. You know, I have a son that lives in Maplewood, New Jersey, and he was flooded. Uh, You know, he lost his furnace and his water heater and it was all sewage back uh, backflow into his basement. You know, it's challenging because you'd never think that he was an area that would need flood insurance. They don't even offer it, really, in those areas. But So we have to think about not just building and rebuilding what was. We have to think about building it back better. And that's why it's really important to look at the infrastructure deal, yep. because that includes $110 billion for roads and bridges and other projects that are going to allow us to continue to invest in in resilient technology. We're talking about passenger and freight rail of $66 billion, so we can fund highways and pedestrian safety programs, pipeline safety and other projects. We're looking at $39.2 billion for public transit. We're looking at a power grid that can stand up to these challenges. Thanks to Gina McCarthy, the first White House National Climate Advisor, for walking us through that it makes me feel like I'm back in Jamaica Plain when I hear her talk. But we connect the dots on all of this now with Bloomberg government's Jack Fitzpatrick, who has been living in the halls of the U.S. Capitol as usual. Uh, Jack, committees are finally clearing some real legislation. We just talked to McCarthy about some of the climate provisions and some of those, by the way, have yet to move. And then we have Ways and Means today. That's awfully important as Richard Neal congratulates members of his committee for for clearing the tax hikes that we were talking about at the beginning of this week. Any major surprises in the tax levels, or did this go through committee as expected, Jack? Uh, The actual legislation went through the committee as expected. The bigger question and the bigger variable for getting this into to actually be signed into law is how is it scored? A couple days ago, the Joint Committee on Taxation said that this would bring in, as you mentioned, $2.1 trillion in revenue. If you subtract the tax credits for that, that leaves them with a net of $871 billion in revenue. Um, that's not quite as much as Democrats want. They may have to rely. You know, we use the, uh, the phrase uh, dynamic scoring when they're yep. talking about how to pay for this. They may have to get into some, some gimmicky stuff. But really, the changes that are likely to be made when they talk to the Senate, that's a significant X factor. Uh, and also, we're, we're hearing from uh, some complaints from moderates, even in the House. There were three no votes on some provisions in the Energy and Commerce uh, Committee today. Uh, you can only afford to lose three votes and still have a majority on the House floor. Hmm. So clearly, the Democrats are not quite near the finish line. But really, they are inching forward and basically advancing the legislation that they said they would advance. It's just that there's a lot of work left to do with the moderates and with the Senate. How about in terms of climate spending, Jack? Uh, this is the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, $57.3 billion. Peter DeFazio, the the uh, the chair, said 
that negotiations with the Senate have been tortuous over this whole reconciliation bill. I, I can only assume this is not going to be enough money for some and it's going to be too much money for Republicans. What does that number tell us? Yeah, it's clearly too much for Republicans. That honestly doesn't really matter right now because Democrats are committed to a partisan path forward through reconciliation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, for some reason, it hasn't been the main focus of what Senator Joe Manchin has brought up, despite him obviously coming from a coal state. We'll see if he pushes back more specifically on the climate measures. Really, a lot of the, the back and forth between leadership and moderates has been on the broader issues of what's the overall cost of this. So I've been a little surprised that there hasn't quite been um, as much of an uproar, just even among the Democrats, on the climate measures. They've moved forward on that. Uh, But that that could be a really tough one, even if Manchin is happy with the top-line number. uh, Climate provisions could become a very difficult subject in the Senate. Yeah, we this this might be a little bit of a sneak peek. Uh, I think you're right on the spot there, Jack. We heard from the president and CEO of America's Power. That's a trade group for the coal-fired power industry. Said this legislation would eliminate coal-fired electricity by 2030, if not sooner. I have a feeling that Joe Manchin might have something to say about that. Uh, great to talk with you, Jack. Keep up the great work at Bloomberg Government. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. So we talked about the tax hikes. We talked about the climate spending, both passing House committees today. But what about the debt ceiling? It's looking more like Democrats really may have to go it alone here. There's no deal and it's not going to be part of reconciliation, as we know. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell telling Punchbowl today, do you guys think I'm bluffing? Saying about Democrats, they're in charge of this government. They've been trying to demonstrate that all year in party line votes to jam us, they will raise the debt ceiling, unquote. And we talk about all this now with the panel. Bloomberg Politics contributor, Republican strategist Rick Davis back with us. And for the hour, Democratic strategist Scott Bolden, former chair of the D.C. Democratic Party. I'm going to ask you both the same question. I'll start with you, Scott. Do you believe Mitch McConnell? Uh, Absolutely. I believe Mitch McConnell. So Democrats Uh, have to go it alone. Oh, there's no question about it. The Republicans are going to be staying together. They always stand together, and especially on a $3.5 trillion spending bill. They stood together during Trump. When they uh, reduced taxes for the rich and the corporations, they blew a, a hole through the uh, deficit ceiling. And so uh, through reconciliation, the Democrats have to keep their um, constituents together and keep, keep their party together on the House and Senate. And that's a bigger challenge than the Republicans had under Trump because you got uh, two congressmen – I'm sorry, two, two senators, one from West Virginia and one from yeah. Arizona, who are pretty independent – And Biden's met with them today to try to get them on board because both of them want a smaller package. So this bill is far from over. It's historic, without a doubt, but it's not done yet. So this sounds to me like it's the debt ceiling's not going in the CR, the continuing resolution to fund the government here, Rick Davis. is going to have to be a standalone uh, Democratic vote? Yeah, I think that uh, you got to believe what Mitch McConnell is saying. He's being very uh, direct about this, which yes. is not actually his, his <laughs> typical. He's even said, look, I voted for debt limits before when I had. Do I walk the plank? <laughs> Nobody right. likes that That's vote. Right. He's like, now it's your turn. You're in charge of the White, the White House, the Senate, and the House. Where, why am I getting these questions? Right. It's not my and business. 2022 is waiting. 
It well, and 2022 is waiting. Exactly. <laughs> so, so you guys walked the plank this time, and I, I think he's serious about that. Well, when Nancy I'm, Pelosi would tell you this is Trump's credit card, though. How come Democrats are paying it off? Because they're in charge. You want to raise the debt limit? You want to keep spending? I mean, yeah. like, you know, last thing Nancy Pelosi wants to do is start sounding like a deficit hawk right now. You're here. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about that evolution, by the way. If it's an evolution, maybe you just see it as being fair, uh, Rick Davis. Here's Mitch McConnell this month. This is the 14th of September talking about raising the debt ceiling. If they want to do all of this on a partisan basis, they have the ability and the responsibility to ensure that the federal government not default, and they will have to take care of that. All right, now to Rick's point, this is Mitch McConnell in July of 2017. Ideally, we would deal with the debt ceiling before the August recess. Does it need to be tied to spending cuts in your mind? We'll see, but the debt ceiling must be raised. Okay, thanks everybody. Okay, goodbye. So, Scott, how does that work then? What vehicle should Democrats use? Throw it into reconciliation? Well, I don't think they have much choice but to throw it into reconciliation. Uh, they may have to deal with it separately, but I don't see one Democrat or the White House talking about uh, any separate uh, motive. They haven't really dealt with it. They haven't said what they're going to do, and that's another reason to look at it. But let me tell you how the Democrats see this, that under the Republicans, there were no deficit hawks. There were no fiscal hawks, and the debt ceiling, they blew a hole through that by – reducing taxes for corporations and the wealthy. And so now the Democrats see their trillion dollar bill, their $3.5 trillion bill, as not only a spending bill, but one that's going to transform America. It's going to help those with health care and Medicare coverage, uh, education, climate change, and immigration, where they mm -hmm. think the money will be well spent and be transformative for hardworking class Americans uh, in this country. And so their spending obligations or their priorities are just very different. But they're going to have to deal with the debt ceiling one way or the other, and they're going to have to go it alone because I don't see one Republican voting for this, and I don't think the Democrats are even trying to peel any of them away. They can do it through reconciliation, but they've got to keep their, their groups together, the House and Senate Dems together, and they're a long way from that. Well, the more stuff you put in reconciliation, the bigger the price tag, the harder it is to keep Mansion and Cinema here, Rick Davis. Uh, exactly. What do you make of the tax hikes here, Rick? They came out as expected on Monday, 26.5% corporate, 25% capital gains does not bring you to $3.5 trillion. The Democrats, even with dynamic scoring, won't likely have enough uh, revenue generated to, to hit that mark. Oh, and I, I, I think that... Uh uh, the point is that uh, you take the tax credits out of this tax package and and and, and you're down to less than a trillion dollars of revenue. So uh, they've got a long way to go before they're going to have a, quote, paid for package. And I think this is what uh, Senator Manchin has been fighting Richie Neal on uh, so hard over the child tax credit. You know, he wants mm -hmm. uh, the senator wants to means test it, you know, reduce the burden that they have to find on tax uh, increases uh, by uh, limiting the child tax credit. But r this is Richie's big deal. He wants yeah. that child tax credit for everybody. Absolutely. And so he's going to have to find a way to pay for it. And that's the biggest credit that's sucking out all that tax revenue. Well, so, Scott, do you need yeah. to raise more money or lower the price tag? Well, probably a little bit of both. You, you haven't heard recently, but the Democrats are going to start talking about the IRS collecting more taxes, cracking down on tax sheets, tax sheets. Uh, the defense budget and contractors, bringing them into compliance, and all of those kind of nuanced 
of soft revenue generators that budgeteers like to throw in as a way of making the numbers work. Uh, I don't think anybody believes those types of numbers with those type of machinations, but I think you're going to see a combination of deals being done. Uh, I think you're going to see a smaller bill, even though Bernie Sanders and, and the progressive uh, lefts on the House and Senate don't want to see that. I don't see any way around it. So look for uh, a smaller bill, if you will, although it's a huge bill, so a smaller bill could still be in the trillions. And also look for some deals to bring cinema and mansion aboard, especially on the uh, on the Green Deal, especially on the uh, climate change issues because of where he's from. How do you get Rick Davis, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, then to vote for this while she's wearing a dress to the Met Gala that says tax the rich? I think they've got to have a package that taxes the rich, and they've done a lot of that in this $2.1 trillion package yeah, they that, have. No, that's true. They that have. Richie Neal has just announced. So she's probably pretty happy right now. Um, uh, but look, she's she's going to be hard to deal with. I mean, like, you know, this week she's emerged as the enemy of uh, Jerome's Powell uh, in his that's reappointment right. uh, over the fact that he doesn't do enough on climate. So uh, I, I think Scott's right. I mean, like, I can't wait to see that chain fight. I mean, when she goes <laughs> head to head with Manchin over climate issues embedded in, you know, the uh, in the package. So, uh, yeah. look, the bottom line on all this is if anybody thought this stuff was going to get done in September, they're wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, this is going to take well into the fall, if not into the winter. Uh, that's going to even create more pressure on mm -hmm. issues like mm -hmm. the continuing resolution and the debt ceiling. And, and, and Pelosi's got a commitment to the moderates in her own party in the House to vote on this infrastructure bill on the 27th, and they yes. are not going to be done with the reconciliation bill by the time that happens. So the question is, like, where does this railroad end? I mean, it's just uh, <laughs> it's a lot of things for the Democratic well, caucus to do in a very short and period. And, Scott, of time. how does Nancy Pelosi keep the moderates happy after promising that vote by the 27th? Well, she's gonna, they're going to hold her to it, uh, and she's going to have to cut deals with the progressives and the alternative. And remember, we still got an infrastructure bill that everyone says – can be a bipartisan bill, mm -hmm. and we haven't even started talking. We, we've talked about that off and on, but uh, I think there's some commitments to try to get that done in September, which is not. These are tight deadlines, and so uh, when they're tight deadlines, in my experience, you cut quick deals. It'll be interesting whether anybody on the House or Senate side reads every line of the ultimate or the final bill, if you will, but uh, she's going to have to modify her deals with the moderates. She's going to have to cut her deals with the progressive. I think everyone's going to be unhappy, and then the unifying point will be they pass something. And that's usually how it happens. Yeah, everyone being unhappy is probably a good thing in this case, isn't it, Rick Davis? I mean, at, at this point, when everyone's back is against the wall, isn't that when the deals are struck? Yeah, I think yeah. that uh, time pressures the only thing that Rick, you know brings everybody to the table, and 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 the negotiations begin in earnest. And and I agree that the day Joe Biden signs any of these pieces of legislation, no matter how painful it was, they're all going to be standing behind him, smiling from ear to ear. And they're going to use it in their campaigns in their home states and districts, mm -hmm. both the Republicans and Democrats, for the midterms. They're going to have their own take on it. <laughs> well, that's the ultimate sweetener here, isn't it? It's it's everyone's own self-interest. you got to go home and take credit for something, whether it's a road, a bridge, climate spending, in the case of Democrats, even child care. If we get to that point, we haven't filled that out yet. Scott, when do we hear about child care? Well, that's in the bill for sure. And uh, as Rick said earlier, uh, the, the, the chairman wants that child 
child tax care credit for everyone, but that's in the bill, if you will. And that's a that's a hard uh, piece to give up for the Democrats because that's part of what they're what they've run on, and many the of the center of the piece president have run on significantly. And so I don't see them walking away from that. That'll be a hard pill. That's Democratic strategist Scott Bolden. He's former chair of the D.C. Democratic Party. And, of course, our veteran panelist Rick Davis, Bloomberg Politics contributor, who's seen this movie before. This is why they call it the fastest hour in politics. Better strap in because we're going to do it again tomorrow. I'll meet you back here. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.